All right, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 13 through 30 this morning. That means we finish up another chapter today and only have nine chapters left. All right, let's, we're going to start reading in verse 13 and then read all the way down through 30. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs, and you'll find this morning's passage in those Bibles on page 824. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to study your word. God, to learn from your son. God, that his words that he spoke while on the earth were written down and they were preserved and passed on and translated so that in our own language we can read what Jesus taught the disciples. So that we can learn more about who he is and what he's done for us so that we can learn more about how we are to respond with faith and obedience to what he's done. Father, we pray that this morning that you would send your spirit to help us to together to to understand what Jesus would say to us from this passage and to understand how we're to apply it to our lives, how what happened 
2,000 years ago to Jesus and the disciples and these children and this rich young ruler, how that applies to us today here in, in Hannibal. Father, we thank you that your word is timeless and it always applies to us. We pray that your spirit would do that for us. We thank you for Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, it's been a a few weeks since the last time we were in Matthew. The last time we were in Matthew, we talked about uh, marriage and uh, divorce and remarriage and and eunuchs and uh, quite a few other things. And what we saw in that passage last time was that uh, marriage represents the gospel, and so any distortion of marriage is a distortion of the gospel. This is where we pick up in Matthew this morning. And today we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven and who it belongs to. And I know uh, that it's more grammatically correct to say to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs, but I'm not going to say that at all today because I just think it sounds pretentious. So I'm going to use bad grammar on purpose, just so you know. We're going to talk about who the kingdom of heaven belongs to, and what we're going to see in our passage today is, is two stories that, that are contrasted with one another. And, and we see these, these children who come to Jesus, and Jesus, uh, even though his disciples try to stop them from coming, he, he welcomes them into his presence. And he tells us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And then this other person comes, this, this rich young man or this rich young ruler who, who talks about all his obedience. And he talks about, uh, and Matthew tells us about his possessions and his position in society. And we would think that the kingdom of heaven belongs to one of these kinds of people who are blessed by God because of what they have and who are blessed by God because of their position in society. But what we're going to see is that he leaves Jesus and, and walks away from an opportunity to be in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is going to tell us that it, it doesn't at all belong to people like that. Our main point this morning is that Jesus is the king and being in his kingdom demands complete submission in discipleship to him. Jesus is the king, and being in his kingdom demands complete submission in discipleship to him. To be a follower of Jesus, we have to trust him completely and do what he says is necessary. Our allegiance must be to him and him alone. It can't be to anything else. That's what we're going to see in this story about the rich young rulers, that there was something else that was competing with Jesus for his allegiance, and he chose that other thing. What we're going to see is that nothing can stand in our way of following our king if we want to be a member of his kingdom. So let's start by looking at these first three verses where these these children are brought to Jesus. Matthew tells us that children were brought to him. They're brought by, I mean, we can assume their parents so that Jesus would lay hands on the children. And and this time it was extremely common for parents to take their children to to, uh, rabbis or to teachers of the law or to the synagogue so that the the religious leaders would bless their children and pray for their children. So this is what's happening here. They want Jesus to lay his hands on them and pray for their kids. But Matthew tells us, and he was one of them, so he would know, he says the disciples rebuked the people. So they didn't just say... You know, 
don't, don't bring your kids over here. They didn't just stop the kids from coming. They actually rebuke. They correct. They, they're, I mean, I think, probably harsh with these people. They're saying, get these kids away from Jesus. Get out of here. They don't belong here. And at first, I think this is pretty surprising. Like, well, the disciples responding in this way to these people, bringing their, their children to Jesus for blessing is surprising because of everything they've seen in Jesus up to this point, right? Just, just back in Matthew 18, Jesus himself picks up a child, sets him in front of the disciples and says, unless you become like one of these, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus clearly doesn't have any problem being around children. And his ministry throughout Matthew's gospel up to this point, we've, it's shown that his, his ministry of healing and his ministry of casting out demons and even his ministry of raising the dead has extended to children as well, not just to adults. He's, he's done things for adults. He's done things for children. He's shown them that he doesn't have any problem with children being around him or him ministering to children or him blessing children. But the disciples seem to think that these children coming in his midst would be a bad thing. And so they, they stop them and tell these people to get themselves and their kids away from Jesus. I think the answer is, is why they do this is it comes in the context, right? It's been a few weeks for us, but for them it was just moments, right? They're having this, this intense conversation with Jesus about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And, and then he talks about eunuchs. And so they're, they're in this, this deep theological discussion about how these things apply to their lives, and then these people walk up to him with kids. And they freak out, and they say, get out of here. And I think that what, what we see here is, is for them, their discussion, their, their conversation with Jesus at this point is more important to them than ministry. They see these people as an interruption they see them as a distraction from what, what's really going on in their midst. They want to keep talking to Jesus about, you know, these complicated issues he brought up in our passage last time, but these people interrupt them. And I think that, that we have a very similar response to ministry when it comes into our lives. You know, we have, have jobs. We have families to raise. We might be having some sort of theological discussion. We might be having a Bible study at community group. We might be having church one day when, you know, something happens that uh, a ministry need is presented to us, and we could react like these disciples and say, no, it's, it's not time for that now. We're, we're doing this. We often have the same response, and I think that, that these circumstances that we see in this passage and the, the disciples' response and Jesus' response, I think it reveals our sin in two major ways. The first way is that we view ministry as an interruption in our life when we are viewing something else as the ultimate purpose for our lives. We view ministry as an interruption of our lives because we view the purpose of our lives as something else. But this is the exact opposite of what we see in Jesus and in his life and in his ministry. For Jesus, his ministry was never an interruption for him because it was the entire purpose for his incarnation. Right? He came down to earth to live a perfect life, to die a death on the cross, to teach, preach, heal people, and, and do other miraculous things. And that was the purpose for his existence here. And so any time ministry was presented to him, like these children walking up in his midst, he didn't say, that's an interruption. 
Because for him, that was why he was here. That's what, what he was sent to do. And so his mission was never for him an interruption. But for us, we view it that way because we view something else as our purpose. But it's not. Right? Jesus' words to us in, in Matthew's gospel. Uh, the rest of the New Testament says that just like Jesus had a mission, we have a mission, right? We're not saved by Christ. We don't have our sins forgiven just so that we can sit around and be happy about the fact that we're redeemed, right? We don't get to just sit here separated off from the world in our, in our cozy little Christian circles waiting till we're taken to heaven and finally separated from all these other sinful people. That's not how it works, right? We're told to go out into the world. We're told to go out in our communities and from our communities and reach people with the good news of Jesus. And if we ever view that as an interruption in our lives, it's because we're not viewing that as the purpose for why we're here. Something else might be. It might be our comfort. It might be our entertainment. It might be raising kids. It might be protecting our families. It might be our job. It might be wealth, like we're going to see in the rich young ruler's story. It might be poverty. But if we view people and their needs and, and our responsibility to be on mission for Jesus as an interruption, it's because we're not viewing that as the purpose for why we're here. And that's sin. And it's really, it's, it's, it's worse than just sin because it's sin that leads to more sin. Because if we're viewing something else as our purpose, it's going to lead us further and further and further and further and further away from Jesus and to something else. It's going to lead us further and further and further away from his kingdom instead of seeking it and pursuing it with all that we are. If we're living for some other purpose than his mission, then we're not just sinning. We are starting an entire pattern of sinning that's going to last for the rest of our lives unless we correct it. For Jesus, his mission was never an interruption, and it shouldn't be for us either. A second way I think these circumstances show the sin in our hearts and in our lives is, I think, in what we see in this passage and what we might not see in our lives. You see, the disciples are able to respond negatively to ministry because they're doing ministry. Jesus is able to respond positively to ministry because he's doing ministry. Because they're fulfilling their mission, these people come up to them and seek to interrupt their lives with ministry. And so if we look at our lives and our lives are never interrupted by ministry, it's probably because we aren't doing any. If his mission never causes interruption in our lives, it's because we're probably not on his mission. And so it's not just what we see in our lives, it's also what we don't see in our lives. And so I think that should cause us to think about what we did this past week, about what we've done this year, about what's happened in our lives up to this point, and to think about, do things like this happen in our lives? Do people with needs walk up to us and say, I need you. I need you to minister to me. I need you to tell me about Jesus. I need you to tell me about what God is doing in, our, in your life. If, if those things don't happen for us, it's probably because we're not being vocal enough about who we are as people. If people in our neighborhoods don't seek us out when bad stuff happens in their lives, it's because they don't know who we are and what we're living for. Because if they did, 
they would seek us out? The answer is pretty easy for us. If, if that's the case, it's be on mission. Be the people who Jesus calls us to be. Go out into your neighborhoods. Go out into your communities. Open up your homes and let the world come in. And I know that's the exact opposite of everything we've been told for our whole lives. It's, it's no, you, you close the doors and you keep the world out. You don't, want, you don't want those people to affect your kids. You don't want those people to affect your home. You don't want all that stuff to come into your life because it's, it's, it's just going to get bad. But I think we welcome them. And, and I think the, the clue comes in what we see Jesus say. He says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So he says, Let these children come. And obviously we've talked about how Jesus was willing to minister to children. Right? He was willing to, to, to serve them and love them and care for them and preach and teach for them just like he did for adults. And so we know he love, loves kids. But he gives more of the reason for why he does this. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. This is why he wants these children to be allowed into his midst. And this phrase is, is kind of confusing because we don't talk like this. We don't say, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. But this is what he means. He means the kingdom of heaven belongs to people like them. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, to people like them. And we talked about this when we covered uh, Matthew 18, where Jesus does that thing where he takes that child and he sets him in front of the disciples because you know, they're, they're showing their pride and they're not living with humility. And so he takes his kid, he sets him in front of the disciples, and he says, truly I say to you, unless you become like them, Unless you become like this one, unless you humble yourself like a child, you will never, ever, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. And when we, we discussed that passage, we talked about the fact that obviously that doesn't mean that just children will be in heaven. It doesn't mean that just children enter his kingdom. It doesn't mean that just children have eternal life. What it means is that those like children are those to whom the kingdom belongs. And he's talking about their humility. And when we covered that passage, we, po- we pointed out and we discussed that, that humility in children is seen in three major areas. The first is, is their neediness, the second is their powerlessness, and the third is their dependence, right? Our kids, all of our daughters, you know, they're, they're young, and they all are inherently needy, and not just because they're girls. <laughs> they're needy, uh, Physically, right? If, if we don't provide them with food, if we don't provide them with clean air, if we don't provide them with water, they will die. They, they don't have the ability to just go out and get that stuff for themselves. They're, they, they're needy emotionally. They need to know that mom and dad love each other and love them and are going to care for them. They need to know that when we leave the house, we're going to come back. They need to know that, that they are cared for and accepted they're needy emotionally. They're also needy materially. If we don't provide them with clothing, if we don't provide them with shelter, they don't have any means to get that for themselves. I mean, Dinah thinks she has quite a bit of money stored up in her piggy bank, but it's not enough. Children are also powerless, right? They can't do anything to change their state in the world. 
They can't go out and get jobs. They can't earn favor in society. They can't earn money. They can't do things to make themselves not children and not needy and not powerless. They're, they're helpless if we don't care for them and take care of them. That comes to the next one. They're dependent. They are utterly reliant on us for everything. If Jen and I do not meet Dinah's and Sophie's and Olivia's needs, I mean, hopefully you guys would, but no one else will. If, if, if grown-ups don't do it for them, they can't. And we're all, you know, he uses that example of children and their humility because it's a great illustration of who we are before God. We're all in that same place before him. We need him to uh, provide for all of our needs physically. He sustains creation, right? None of us cause the sun to come up today. None of us cause rain to fall on the earth. None of us cause it to be warm or cold. That just happens because God causes it to happen, right? We're needy materially. If, if God doesn't provide us with things that we can make shelter and food out of his creation, then, then we're hopeless. We can't just manifest uh, housing out of nothing. I mean, Matt can build a house, but he needs materials to do it. And those materials are provided from God's creation. We also know that because God is, is all-powerful and all-knowing and perfect and holy and completely righteous, that we can't do anything to change our state before him. Right? We can't do anything to trick God or to get around his rules or to, to please him in some way because he already has everything that he needs. He doesn't need anything from us and we can't do anything to change our state before him because he's perfect. He's going to see through it and see through us. And just like with children, that's where our dependence comes in because we need him and he doesn't need us because we're powerless before him and he's all powerful above us. We are utterly dependent on him to change our state before him. We're utterly dependent on him to act on our behalf. And of course, we know in the gospel that's exactly what he does, right? He sends his son to the earth. His son lives the perfect life that we couldn't live. He keeps all of God's commands that we could never keep. He dies the death, paying the penalty for all of our sin. He rises again, proclaiming his victory over sin, death, and Satan. He does what we can't do for us. He changes our state before him because we are powerless to change that. And we are dependent on him to act. So Jesus can say that humility is required for entrance into the kingdom because humility is what defines the way as we as humans relate to God. We can't relate to God in any other way than being humble before him. Because we have no other choice. And so when Jesus says this phrase, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom belongs to people like them. What we should see here is not that, that Jesus is saying the kingdom just belongs to children. He's not saying that he's only willing to minister to children. He's saying that we should see in his words, in these words, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. We should see in this an implicit call to open up our lives to all those who are in need of the transforming grace of the gospel. He's saying the kingdom belongs to them because they need me. The kingdom belongs to other people because they perceive their need of Jesus. This phrase, the little children, 
It's not literal. I mean, of course it is because these are actual little children who are being brought to Jesus. But when he says that the kingdom belongs to them, he means it belongs to those like them, those who are humble before him, those who recognize their need for the transforming power of the gospel. And so what we should think and what we should ask is what are we doing in our lives that's hindering these kinds of people from coming to us? Right? These disciples rebuke these parents. They say, get your kids out of here. And hopefully we're not doing those kinds of things to people. (laughs) But this should cause us to evaluate our lives, to look at why these people don't come to us, to see if we actually are doing ministry and we are ministering to people and people know that we do that so that they do come to us. We should make sure that there's no barriers between us and our neighborhoods. We should make sure that there's no barriers between us us and those who are in need of, of the gospel. And the other thing we should do like we saw with with why the disciples responded negatively and Jesus responded positively, is we should understand what the purpose is for our existence. Not in general as in what is the meaning of life, but in why do we exist as new creations in Christ. Right? If, If he has saved us, if he has made us new, if he has redeemed us, then we are redeemed so that he can redeem others through us. It's not just so that we can be happy in our saved state so that God can change the hearts of other people through us just like he changed our heart through someone else. And what we should see in Jesus' words here is just like the disciples rebuked the people, Jesus is, I think, politely rebuking the disciples. He's, he's correcting their misconceptions. They think that their conversation with Jesus is more important to Jesus than these people. And he says, no. The kingdom belongs to them. And so I think we should, just like the disciples would have heard his rebuke, we should allow the Spirit to rebuke us with those same words. We should really consider how what we see in this passage lines up with how we live and how we view ministry and how we view our responsibility to to follow Jesus on mission. Jesus, of course, does what these people want. He lays his hands on them, he blesses the children, and then he goes away. And then immediately, we're met with this next guy. So in verses 13 through 15, we have these utterly needy people who come up to Jesus and ask him to minister to them. And then in verses 16 through 30, we're met with this man who is rich, who is a ruler, who is young, who seems to have everything going for him. And he comes up to Jesus with a question. He says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And with this phrase, have eternal life. In Matthew's gospel, there's a whole lot of synonyms that all kind of mean the same thing. Uh, discipleship to Jesus, being in the kingdom, having eternal life, being saved. Uh, they're, they're all a very similar idea. They're, they're synonyms. And so he's asking, what do I need to do to essentially have eternal life or be in the kingdom or be a believer or be saved 
That's what he wants to know. What good thing must I do? And look at how Jesus answers him. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. His point is, your good deeds aren't good. It doesn't matter what good thing you do. There's only one who is good. So even what you do isn't good. But then he says, if you would enter life, if you would have eternal life, keep the commandments. And some people say, here it is. Jesus says, if you want life, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He says right here, our good deeds earn us salvation. Right? That's what he said. If you would enter life, keep the commands. But unfortunately, for people to think that, the Bible doesn't end here. And Jesus' conversation with this guy doesn't even end there. He keeps going. This guy asks him, which ones? Which ones must I keep, is what he's asking. And so, at this point, it becomes pretty clear that this guy isn't all that sincere. He wants to know what the bare minimum is that he has to do in order to get this eternal life, in order to be in Jesus' kingdom. Which ones must I do? And look at how Jesus responds. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus responds with commands 5 through 9 of the Ten Commandments, and then he tacks on uh, Leviticus 19.18. He says, don't, mo- don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Most people are probably good at this point, right? Don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Next one, shall not bear false witness. A lot of people probably lose out on that one, right? A lot of people, uh, there, there are, I'm sure, some exceptionally honest people, but most people lie at some point in their life. Jesus goes on, honor your father and mother, I think right here, anyone that has ever been a teenager is out. (laughs) But just in case somebody made it through, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So even if someone made it through at that point, I don't think anyone in the history of the world except for Jesus has ever all the time loved those uh, who are their neighbors as themselves. The only person we love as ourself is ourself if we're honest. But this guy doesn't hesitate. Jesus says, do these things. He says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? His response is, check. I'm blameless. I'm perfect. I've followed all of these to a T. And then he says, what do I still lack? And I love this statement. This is probably one of my favorite statements in the entire Gospel of Matthew, and I love the Gospel of Matthew. All these I have kept, what do I still lack? I love this statement because I think that that I and, and that we make similar statements like this all the time, where we show a, a knowledge of much more gospel truth than we know or understand. And this guy here, he, he displays an incredible 
amount of self-perception. He knows himself very well. But at the same time, he displays an incredible lack of self-perception, all bound up in one statement. Right? His, his lack of self-perception is pretty clear. Right? He thinks he's perfect. He thinks he's done all of these things. And, and even if by, by some miracle he was able to keep the letter of the law on all of these things, which I highly doubt. There's no way he kept the heart of the law like Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. At some point of his life, even if it's just one time, you know that this guy either got angry or, or lusted or desired something that wasn't his or thought ill will towards his parents or selfishly served his neighbor. At some point on the inside, this guy's heart wasn't behind all of his law keeping. At some point, he fell short, but in his self-delusion, he thinks that he has. He says, I've done it. All of them I've kept. But at the same time, he gets something extremely important. He knows himself exceptionally well, and this is why he adds on the last question. He says, what do I still lack? So even though he thinks he's kept the law perfectly, he says, what do I still lack? He knows that his law-keeping isn't enough. He knows that his good deeds aren't enough. He knows that no matter how much he does and no matter how many commands he obeys, he still lacks something. There's still some gap between him and eternal life. And so he says, what do I still lack? So even though he's deluded on one part, he still gets the other part. What do I still lack? And look at how Jesus answers him. He says, if you would be perfect. Perfect does not mean morally perfect. It doesn't mean morally right. It doesn't mean holy. It means complete. He's saying, if you want to fill up what you lack, like you just asked me, do this. Go and sell what you possess. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He says, go sell all your possessions. Store up your treasure in heaven. Quit caring about your wealth and follow me. He's saying, be my disciple. These words here to the rich young ruler are are really just a, a specific application of what he told the disciples earlier in Matthew. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He's given this guy a specific application to his life of that verse. You see, Jesus' perception of this rich young ruler is better than the rich young ruler's own perception of himself. He knows whether he's obeyed or not. He knows what he lacks. And what he says he lacks is that he needs to go sell all his stuff and store up treasure in heaven. The reason why Jesus says that is because he knows exactly what's lacking in him. What's lacking in him is that he loves his wealth more than he loves Jesus. His wealth for him is an idol. Jesus is saying here, you've kept, possibly, you know, like the last half of the Ten Commandments, but you've missed the more important ones. You might be outwardly obeying all these things, but inwardly you're worshiping an idol, and the idol is your money. And so get rid of that, and then follow me. Jesus explains his actions, what he says after this guy walks away sorrowful. He says, When the young man 
heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And I really wish that, that Matthew here would have put in like a parenthetical statement. I wish he would have said, for he had great possessions, he thought. Because even though this guy had a whole bunch of stuff, even though this guy had a whole bunch of money, we know that in the grand scheme of things, all of that stuff is worthless. Because this guy walks towards his wealth, and he walks away from the kingdom, he walks away from eternal life, and more importantly, he walks away from Jesus for things. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So just in case we didn't understand the only with difficulty part, he gives us an illustration. A camel for them. Jesus didn't just pick this animal randomly. He picked it because it's the largest animal that they had in Palestine. And as we know, the eyes of needles are small. Right? It's, it's ridiculously hard to even get a thread through a needle. That's why they have things like needle threaders. I don't think they have camel threaders. <laughs> uh, he's saying it's impossible. So why? Why is it hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven? Does it mean if you have wealth, you should just pick another religion because it's, it's not going to happen here is what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. I don't think it's because they have money that it's difficult for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard because money is an idol. I would assume that we all know that. Even though we don't have a lot of money, money can still be an idol for us. If we had lots of it, it would probably be even more difficult. But at the end of the day, this is just one example. This is one specific example of, of you know, an infinite number of idols that we can worship instead of Jesus. Anything in our lives can make it difficult for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Just like Jesus says, only with difficulty uh, can a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Only, you know, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of needle than a rich person enter the kingdom of God. He could have included a whole lot of other things in that. He could have said a parent. He could have said a husband. He could have said somebody that has a nice job. He could have said somebody that has a nice car. He could have said somebody that's poor, right? Because even poverty can be an idol just like wealth can be an idol. Anything and everything that competes with Jesus as the one who rules and reigns over our hearts can be an idol that we worship instead of him. It can be something that makes it almost impossible for us to get in the kingdom of heaven. Just like this man walked away from Jesus to his wealth, we can walk away from Jesus to a whole host of other things in our lives. The truth is that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why Jesus uses this example. Why he talks about rich people. Because everybody assumed that the rich people were already in the kingdom of God. Because they had all that stuff. This guy has position. He's a ruler. He has wealth. He's, he's, he's rich. And because of that, people assume that, that those were signs of God's blessing, signs of God's favor. And there's people all over the world that still think this way. That was, that was one of the weirdest things to me in India is that people really wanted all of us Americans to pray for them because they assumed that because we lived here and we had a lot of stuff and we had comfortable lives that we 
somehow some, had some closer connection to God. And I said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and, but, but that's what these people in this culture thought. They thought that because these people were blessed materially, that God favored them, that they were part of the kingdom. But Jesus is saying, this isn't the case. This guy has just walked away from the kingdom for something else. And in response, disciples ask, Who then can be saved? They were greatly astonished. They're shocked at what Jesus says. Because their, their thought is, well, if, if, if rich people don't get in, then who does? If these people that we think are already in aren't in, then who is? Who then can be saved? And then Jesus says, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are are possible. Does anybody know what's wrong with Jesus' answer here? They say, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What's wrong with his question? And that's a real question. Anybody got any guesses? He says, who then can be saved? Jesus says, what man, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. No. I'll give you a hint. Jesus is very much like a politician here. He doesn't answer the question. They say, who can be saved? Jesus says, with man this is impossible, with God this is impossible. Or possible. They say who, Jesus answers how. And that's pretty surprising. But really, he is answering their question. It seems like he's not, because he doesn't respond with a list of people that get in. They're saying, who then can be saved? Jesus says, without God, no one. The answer to who can be saved without God is nobody. Not rich people, not poor people. Not men, not women, not old, not young. No one is saved without God. But with him, all things are possible. Yes, maybe even everybody, if they believe. Anyone can be saved, rich or otherwise. That's what Jesus is answering here. And Peter goes back to possessions. He says, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? saying clearly, even though we're not rich, we've been saved, we've left everything, we've followed you, what then will we have? And Jesus gives this long statement. Truly I say to you in the new world, that's the new creation, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, when he comes back and consummates his kingdom, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We're going to talk more about that when we get to Matthew 23, 24, and 25. So I'm going to skip it today. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, I just want to be clear that this is not a literal promise. It doesn't mean if you give up one thing here, you're going to get a hundred of them there. At least I hope that's not the case because having 100 mother-in-laws is not my idea of heaven. 
mothers-in-law. That's right. His, his point is that in comparison to what we will gain in relationship to Jesus is, is far greater than whatever we'll lose. And this rich young ruler didn't get that. Jesus caps it all off with his last statement. Many who are first will be last and the last first. This is going to carry into the next passage. The next passage ends, ends the same exact way. And so we're going to talk about it then, but his point is this. His point is that the way things work in the world are not the way things work in the kingdom of heaven. In most cases, it's going to be the exact opposite. You might think rich people get in. Well, it's hard for them to get in. It's hard for everybody to get in. It doesn't matter who you are. And so what we see in our passage when we're we're asking the question, who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? You know, it would seem like the kingdom would belong to somebody who has a lot of power and a lot of wealth and a lot of resources like this rich young ruler. But he's shown to be somebody who's outside the kingdom, somebody who, who chooses himself not to be in. He's unwilling to do what's necessary to enter it. He's unwilling to, to give everything he has to discipleship in Jesus. Instead, it's those who are like children, those who are needy and powerless and dependent, those who who are willing to humble themselves and give up everything they have and everything they are and everything that they hope to be in following Jesus. And so, if you're someone who is trusted in Christ for salvation, if you're someone who, who wants to inherit eternal life, someone who wants to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, your relationship with him, your discipleship to him should look much more like this these little children than it does like this rich young ruler. We shouldn't come to Jesus and say, what do I have to do for you today? Which of these commands must I keep? Is it okay if I still break this one because, you know, people my age all struggle with this? Is it okay if, if, if I struggle with anger because, you know, I'm, I'm a mom and it's really difficult? Is it okay if, if I work way too much because I'm providing for my family at the same time? We pick these things and we come to Jesus and we say, what's the least I can do today? And still hold on to my stuff. But for us, it should look more like these children. The humility that they have should be humility that we have. It should cause us to recognize that God has already done everything for us. We don't have to keep commands like this guy thought. But we do have to follow in faith and obedience. And I think that in, in response, what we do is we live a life like he lived. We live a life like the disciples lived, where people interrupt us with ministry, where people come to us because we're living on mission for him, where we see the reality that, that our lives are supposed to be about those things. Our lives are supposed to be about his things and not about our things. His purpose should be our purpose, and we should follow him with the humility of a child instead of thinking that we already have enough on our own to make it on our own. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And I would just encourage you to, to pray through this passage, to ask the Spirit to, to correct you like Jesus corrects the disciples, to ask the Spirit to correct you like Jesus corrects this rich young ruler, that you would recognize 
that just like this, this rich young man had deluded himself into thinking that he had it all together and he had all the answers, that you would allow Jesus by his spirit to, to point out the ways in which he knows us better than we know us. And then whenever you're ready, go back, take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your kingdom is contrary to the way the world works. And it is that way because you are reversing the effects of the fall with it. You are overturning the curse and making all things anew. And we thank you that those promises aren't just for creation, they're for us too. That you are changing the way we work, changing the way we think, restoring our emotions, helping us to love you and follow you and serve you and to love others and serve them. We pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to apply this passage, help us to order our lives based on what we see in it. That we wouldn't come to you with a lowest common denominator allegiance, but that like children, we would submit ourselves completely to you and your rule and reign over us. we would live our lives out of an obedient response to the grace we've been shown in the gospel. That we would follow you in the mission that you've given us. That we wouldn't see those in need like us as interruptions. But as people that you want to change like you've already changed us. We thank you for your word. Pray that we would be people of it. And we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf.